Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. time for another episode of the tc live podcast on the tennis podcast network i'm your host mitch michaels and as always thank you for joining me as we're winding down the 2020 atp season with another great episode this week the guest is none other than tennis channels play-by-play broadcaster noah eagle noah is also the radio voice of the clippers having just graduated from syracuse a year ago broadcasting runs in his family his father ian eagle is a standout sportscaster as well we get into all the specifics with noah eagle including how he decided to become a broadcaster his journey to syracuse and then to los angeles for the clippers working for tennis channel some advice he has some stuff he learned along the way it's a great conversation. We get into tennis as well. He got to go over for Tennis Channel to call some French Open matchups. It was a great discussion with Noah Eagle. Couldn't have been more generous with his time. We even dive into the weeds on tennis, what we like, and uh, what we're looking forward to as the final weeks of the season wind down. It's Noah Eagle on the TC Live podcast. Let's start the show. All right, it's the TC Live podcast this week. We're getting up for Halloween. Still some tennis time left in the season. Our guest this week, none other than our play-by-play man, as well as the LA Clippers radio play-by-play man, Noah Eagle. Noah, thanks for joining the show. Mitch, thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited. I'm looking forward. First of all, I was hoping for the Halloween episode you'd be dressed up. Yeah. I'm disappointed. It's Friday. You know, I mean, if it was Saturday and, you know, if the actual holiday was on Friday, maybe. But I also don't know what the dress code is around here officially being (laughs) here for five years. I want to get to a lot with your backstory as well as the tennis season. But we're going to start with something because we got to keep people on their toes here and honest. Something I noticed on the show earlier this week, I think it was yesterday, actually. There's tennis in Vienna, but there's also tennis in Kazakhstan. And uh, let's see. This is what I found. Americans in action in Nur Sultan, Kazakhstan. Mackie McDonald with a very nice win over Alexander Bublik in the first round. Straight sets. So do we have a response to that, or is that just the yeah, low-hanging fruit of the week? <laughs> of course we have a response. Borat 2 just came out, so yeah. it's very topical right now. Um, I tried to very, I guess, swiftly get it in, and clearly, Mitch, nothing gets past you. So you're, you're like a brick wall. You're just yeah. going to deflect it right back, which I appreciate. My whole goal, because uh, you've seen me, you, you know me, and mm-hmm. you've seen kind of what I do, my whole goal with broadcasting in general is how can I weave in and out things that I enjoy, and that's movies, television, other sports, etc. and so Borat's right at the top of that list, and if one person gets it, if one person picks up on it, I consider it a win. So now that, now that I know you picked up on it, it's a win. We're just handing out W's over here. No, <laughs> I, I appreciate that too. It's, it's nice to have some flavor. I was going to say youthful flavor. You've gotten, you know, your youth probably thrown at you a lot, but it's good to have an entertaining value to this. And, uh, you know, we know that there's times in the year, much like when a basketball season where it could kind of drag on, it could just feel like it's, you know, the same old, same old. So it's nice to kind of stay entertaining. Um, starting with this, we'll start with your background and getting into broadcasting and all that. But 
you know, it's no, it's no, you know, secret that you grew up around boots your whole life. And we're looking back to what, like the early New Jersey Nets teams. Is mm. that when you first kind of got the bug and were around a broadcast booth? Yeah. So my dad has been, and he also works with Tennis Channel and has mm-hmm. for several years now. He has been the the voice of the New Jersey and now Brooklyn Nets since before I was just an idea, since <laughs> yeah. before I was an actual person. So this will be his 27th year coming up with the Nets organization. And so for me, I was born into that, and I fell in love with basketball probably first. And basketball has always been a huge love of mine, and, and my dad is a big reason for that because I could see every day I'd wake up and I'd see him working or I'd see him on TV or hear him on the radio, and I saw and felt how much joy that gave him. And I could understand why when you're in the environment, no different than when we were at tennis matches. I would go to the U.S. Open with him when he was working that for years, year after year after year, I was going to the U.S. Open and going to side courts or just walking the grounds, and it's hard not to get intoxicated by that feeling. And so for me, yeah, that was that was certainly something that I was enamored with early. And if you want to go back to the to the days of Jason Kidd, Kenyon Martin, Richard Jefferson, Kerry those Kittles, Kerry yeah. Kittles, those Nets teams for sure, yeah. and then the Vince Carter era, and then Devin Harris and Brooke Lopez, and then the Brooklyn era with Darren Williams, I was there through the entire right. thing. Uh, so all of those certainly played a role in shaping my sports fandom and who I am. Well, there's two layers to that, obviously. For those of us that are fortunate to, you know, have fathers in our lives and kids want to be like their dads. But the other side of it is it's a really fun industry. I mean, Mm -hmm. you see just how fun it is to go to the arena. There's still that grind. There's still the prep you have to put into it. But you get hooked on something, not just wanting to be, you know, like your father and with your father, but also just how fun it is. Exactly. I think that's that's the biggest key is being around. You're saying, okay, so I love sports. I realized, okay, my dad's not tall. My, my mom's not tall. My, my grandparents, they're, they're not tall. So I'm not going to be tall or big or super athletic or any of this stuff, but I still want to be around that, that world and that life, and this is another avenue to do it, to be around all those players, to be around the, the rah-rah, everything that goes into the games and the, the matches in the case of tennis I wanted to be around it still, yeah. and so that was – it gave me an opportunity to do it, but it wasn't necessarily what I always wanted to do. There were a lot of – my dad included people who six, seven years old, they decide, I want to be a broadcaster. My dad, I think – I believe he was seven when he decided, wow. I want to go into broadcasting. It took me to be about 13 or so. Before that, people would ask me, well, what do you want to be? And I would tell them straight face, deadpan, didn't even have to think about it, I want to be a TV dentist. <laughs> <laughs> TV dentist? Yeah, no, that doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. exist. People would go it's like an actor. Or like well, a- people looked at me like I had four heads. They thought <laughs> what, they would look at my parents like, what, "What's wrong with your kid?" Yeah, I, because it doesn't exist. I thought yeah. maybe if you just took Doctor Phil or Doctor Oz and then dentistry. Oh, but I realized I, I, I realized people hate looking at people's mouths and yeah. teeth. So once I figured that out, uh, I made the quick the, the swift change to to sports broadcasting, and I haven't looked back. Middle school is still pretty early to have yes. a have a strong conviction of what you want to do. Uh, and just an aside on that, you had I'm assuming at least maybe not the flashiest, but some athletic career. Did you play some sports <laughs> I too? I did. Was I there played some, sports. Like, what's the nicest? Rev- what's the most glowing review of your you know athleticism or your game in a certain sport? I mean, I can go back. <laughs> Getting dunked on by future NBA players and stuff like that. I was when I was thirteen. I got dunked on by a a dude by the name of Isaiah Briscoe. Okay, and he eventually went to Kentucky. He played a little bit with the Orlando Magic. I think he's playing overseas now. 
but we were 13 years old and that happened. And I if, keep in mind, you know me now, I'm 5'8 yeah. on a good day. At the time, I was maybe like 4'8", 4'9", and the dude just dunked all over me. So that that's happened. I played basketball really all growing up. I played tennis into high school a little nice. bit. I stopped when I realized I had to focus full-time because I loved basketball so much. And mm -hmm. so I played 365 yeah. days pretty much. But I, I still love the game of tennis, and whenever I can play, I, I very much love to. And so those are really where I went. People tried to convince me to play football in high school. I said, absolutely not, because <laughs> yeah. I would just get tossed around. Yeah. Same with lacrosse, same with some of those other sports. But I played everything growing up, as, as most kids who enjoy sports in general do. So soccer, baseball, basketball, lacrosse, football, all of it, I tried. And then I just picked and chose what I liked. And when you were at that point, I say middle school, you say, okay, this is what I want to do. I'm going to become a broadcaster. I'll find a way to do it. You know, your dad's an, uh, an alum, a famous one at Syracuse. And that seems to be the hotbed where everybody goes. Was that then the plan? Okay, I'm going to Syracuse. I got to find a way to make that happen. No, no, that's not how it went at all. So Syracuse was always at the top of a list in some way, shape, or form, just because of the reputation that they have there, mm -hmm. the Newhouse School. And most kids who are infatuated with the broadcasting industry or some sort of facet of it, at least think about going to Syracuse or consider it or look into it in any way. And so that was going to be me from the start. But I didn't, at the same time, both my parents went to Syracuse. Yeah. They met there. And in my mind, I was thinking, do I really want to just kind of do the same thing and, and kind of keep the, the tradition going? And so as a senior in high school, junior and senior in high school, I decided, no, I want to look everywhere. And the first time, first place that we went to was Syracuse, my spring break of my junior year of high school. And I left there and I looked at my mom and said, I can't go here. And she said, <laughs> really? I said, yeah, it's not me. She said, okay, that's fine. And that was the really cool thing was my parents, they didn't push for it. Uh, they probably knew deep down it was the best place to be for setting myself up yeah. in my future. But at the same time, they weren't going to say, you have to go because we went, you have to go. They wanted me to make my own choice. They wanted me to feel comfortable about where I was telling people long-term I went to school. And so I visited Miami, visited Maryland. I visited USC and UCLA oh. out here in California. And eventually, after I visited all those other schools, I went back a second time to Syracuse. And this time, 15 minutes into our drive home, my mom looked at me and said, well, what do you think this time? And I said, I think I'm going to apply early decision. Oh. And, and so it was... The more perspective I had of what everybody had to offer, it wasn't that the other schools were bad because I loved all those other yeah. schools. I would, If I had to go to Maryland, Miami, USC, UCLA, would have loved four years there. It was more so that Syracuse had the most to offer and the highest level to offer compared to everything else. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, you always want to get that experience of checking out what the scenery has to offer, what the different schools have to offer, and do your research first. It's kind of like preparing for a broadcast in a way. Now, I've always been curious about this. So Syracuse is nationally renowned, has pumped out so much talent, your father included, and, and you could just name you know some of the most famous sports anchors of all time. And this WAER, I believe mm. it is, radio station. Oh, yeah, where you did your just, homework. It's oh, not, yeah. yeah, I did, man, I did. Well, my question is, you go to this school, it's great, it's an unbelievable opportunity, but how do you stand out in such a big pond? I mean, this is, from the outside, it seems like, okay, this is the place to be. But just getting in doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to be a legit broadcaster. I'm going to make a, a huge living. It's, okay, you're there with the other best talented kids in the, in the country. Now you have to prove yourself further. How do you think you were able to do that? You know, Mitch, it's funny. A lot of kids reach out to me and reach out to a lot of people at Syracuse that went to Syracuse, whomever. 
but especially right now that it's still somewhat fresh, that I just got out of there, people want a perspective of what's it like. And that's the question I get most often is how difficult is it because there are so many. The numbers are so large compared to some of these other programs where maybe you might be able to get on the air right away. Mm -hmm. The thing about Syracuse, there are a couple aspects that make it really awesome. The first one is exactly that. When you have so many people there and they're all extremely dedicated and they're all extremely focused to a certain extent. I, when I was in college, I was still in college. I was still making sure that I was enjoying my college experience. That yeah. was important to me. And I tell everybody that that should be important to them too because you only get four years mm -hmm. there in theory. You only get four years in college. So make sure you're a college student first and yeah. then doing this stuff second. But maintaining your focus in this stuff broadcasting, the radio, the TV, all of it, your classes. With that, with all those numbers, comes competition. With that competition, you're pushing yourself to be the very best that you can be because you know that the person next to you is doing the exact same thing. If you don't come with your best foot forward every time you're on the air, then the next person is, and they yeah. can take your spot as a result. So it, it pushes you constantly to say, I need to be better, I need mm. to be better, I need to be better. And that's a good thing because you're pushing yourself now. So that's one. The other thing that it does is a lot of these other programs that might not have the same numbers, you can probably get on the air at their biggest station as a freshman right away, and you yeah. can start getting reps, which is great. What Syracuse does is in WAER in particular, WAER with the rich history and with the numbers – it gives priority to those who have put in the work. So juniors and seniors right. are the ones who are doing the majority of the on-air work, which means as a freshman and sophomore, you're observing, you're right. watching, you're learning, you're learning how to run positions behind the scenes. Before right. I did anything on the air, I had to be producing, I had to engineer, I had to cut highlights. Yeah. Well-rounded, yeah. Right, and yeah. so you're, they're teaching you how to do all of these positions because you're not necessarily going to enter the workforce and get exactly what you expect to get right away. You need to be able to do everything. You need to be a, a Swiss Army knife. And that's what Syracuse does prepare you to do. The other thing that WAER does, and this scares people away, is they have you come in super early, right away as a freshman. You come in once a week to write a, a practice sportscast and record it and have someone listen to it, but you're coming in at 5.36 in the morning. Okay. And so yeah. it's teaching you, first of all, it, it already is weeding out the ones who aren't super serious uh -huh. about it. And the ones that are continue through, and then they get to the next step, and the next step, and the next step, and eventually you work your way on staff. So all of those factors play a role. Making yourself stand out, it's no different than when you get into the workforce. Think about how many people do this job, want to be doing this job. Right. You need to find ways to, so you played the, the little Borat clip <laughs> earlier. Yeah. If that's going to separate me, uh -huh. great, I'm going to do that. I'm going to try to be memorable in some way like that. I think that's a really good thing about Syracuse is it teaches you, okay, how can I think outside the box so that someone says, okay, this guy's different than this guy or this girl's different than this girl or guy or girl or whatever it might be. Yeah, That to me is very important. I think it also shows that you make it through everything that you did. You're well-rounded. You're also going to come out of Syracuse, maybe not with the number of reps someone had at a smaller school to get on the air first, but you're going to come out more polished mm. and you're probably going to have the chance. I know I think you guys got to travel a lot too and do some non-Syracuse stuff as well. I mean, th those opportunities there that are obviously earned, you're going to get that chance. And you're going to have people teaching you, coaches, people in your corner with connections like Syracuse. That could be great. And the other thing, too, and, and you, know, you didn't touch on it, but I'm just assuming, like there is that added pressure of, okay, my dad went here. He what, has a photo of himself that I walk by every day. So 
you know, just doing enough isn't going to be good enough. I have to go above and beyond to make sure there's no doubt that it's just, you know, I'm not resting on any laurels or anything. I think I probably put almost too much pressure on myself initially for that. When I first got to Syracuse, and I've told this before, but when I first got there, my first two years, two plus years even, I did not attach my last name, introducing myself to people. They would say, hey, I'm blah, blah, blah. I'd say I'm Noah. And I would leave it at that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think, I thought people would mostly figure it out, but there, you'd be surprised how many people didn't. And then eventually found out, and they're like, why wouldn't you just say it? I'm like, yeah, because I'm more than just that. Yeah. In my head, that's what I thought. And then I realized I can't shy away from it. I can't turn away from it. I need to be proud of it because my dad's a, a really good person. He's a really good broadcaster. He's worked incredibly hard to get to where he is and to provide for me and help me along this path. And so for me, I said, okay, I'm just going to embrace it yeah. and let the work do the talking. So that was the mentality that shifted about my junior year in college. So the first two plus years, I, I just wanted to make me. Uh -huh. I wanted it to be Noah, not Noah Eagle. And that's when I made the conscious effort. But I'd say the pressure I put on myself was, and I don't know if this is necessarily true, but in the moment I'm thinking, okay, because of my last name, because of the preconceived notions people probably will have about anything that I might get, any opportunities I might get, I almost need to work twice as hard to prove them wrong. It's, it's not necessarily yeah. true, but it forced me to work really hard, mm -hmm. which was probably a good thing at the time. And it, I made sure that I was buttoned up in every possible category going into an assignment. Right. And I, I continue that work ethic now, and I continue that mentality to a certain extent now, but I know that, okay, it's not that I have to work twice at har as hard. I just have to go out and do a good job. And right. if I continue to do a good job, then eventually it's going to be less, oh, well, he's there because he's Iron Eagle's son and more, okay, yeah, he belongs. Yeah. And that's really the, the, the point that I'm trying to get to mm -hmm. long-term. Yeah, it's almost like the, the coach's son metaphor. Like sure. if they play well, no one cares why is he out here. If he's doing his job and everybody likes likes the contributions there. Uh, how how cool was that first moment, though, when you and your dad crossed paths? I think it was a Syracuse game. You were covering it for the station. He was covering it nationally, getting on, getting some camera time together. Yeah, it was, it was a whirlwind of a weekend. So it was Syracuse-Miami, February of 2018. And I had gone... The way it works at WAER is there's a new sports director every year, and they're a senior. And so I was a junior at the time, and I went to our sports director that year. is a guy by the name of Sean Salisbury, one of my close friends, and I said, hey, my dad got this assignment. Is it possible for me to go? Because most of the time, juniors, especially in conference games, they don't travel like that. I said, this might never happen again. Mm -hmm. This could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He said, yeah, let's, let's make it happen which was awesome. Nice. Yeah. He didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and I would have understood if they said no. I would have gotten it. But it was really cool of the station to say, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's get it done. So I get to go, and I prepare a ton for the game. I get ready. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I just thought I was going to go and show up and do the game. And when I got there, my dad said, hey, they mentioned, CBS mentioned that they might want you to interview me. I said, really? Okay said, yeah, they haven't said anything necessarily about it. They just mentioned it in conversation, so I don't know. I said, okay. So we show up to the game the next morning, and I'm walking around saying hello to people that I've met over the years that my dad works with and I, I just know from, from being with him. And eventually they said, hey, you cool to do this interview? I said, yeah, okay. They said, okay, cool, sit down. I'm like, oh, right now? They go, yeah, yeah, right now. I go, okay, well, what do you want me to ask him? They go, yeah, whatever you want. 
I go, okay. You know, how long do you want it to be? You know, five minutes or so. I go, okay. <laughs> and then a minute later, my dad sits down next to me. Sixty seconds. They gave me a microphone. They said, go. I go, what? <laughs> I'm I'm there a junior is. in college. I've never fun. done any of this <laughs> stuff before. And they just said go. And so I just went, and it was really awesome because. It ended up blowing up, that clip in particular. Yeah. It got a ton of views, a ton of clicks. CBS posted it on their Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. And everybody was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. This had to have been super planned. It wasn't. It was literally no different than a conversation that we would normally have sitting down at a dinner table. And that's what made it cool, I think. Right, and you got to think, like, every broadcaster probably has that moment where it's like, oh, here, the lights are on this the first time. To have it with your dad had to be as, you know, as smooth and easy as – that situation could possibly be. It, it definitely helped. Yeah. It definitely helped that I had somebody there. And I, I watch it back now yeah. and I say, man, I it was good for, for the time. <laughs> but I, yeah. it's the same that I, I listen yeah. back or watch back something from a week ago. And I say, man, I'm, I'm better now than I was then. And that's still my goal. Yeah. And that's going into, because I know you mentioned that I do the Clippers. And I'm sure we'll get yeah. to that at some point. But doing that this year, my goal going in was, okay, I want game one not to be as good as game 50. And I want game 60 to be way better than game 50. It's no different than when I'm on Tennis Channel as well. I say, I want show one versus show 10. There should be a clear gap. Or match one versus match 10. There should be a clear gap. And that's the same case from that moment on. I said, okay, I'm going to do my best every time I get on. But I watch it back and I say, how can I improve? But yes, that moment in particular, my mom was there. My grandparents were there because they live in Florida. And it was just... We never thought it would happen again. It has since yeah. then, which has been really cool. But it was it was really, really awesome. Really, really awesome. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Chat with Noah Eagle on the TC Live podcast. Uh, I keep forgetting, you know, that you're probably, what, a lifelong Syracuse fan as well, growing up with it. And how old would you have been, just on the side, when uh, Carmel made that run? Like four or five years old? No, so it was 2003, um, but it was March of 2003, which means I was five turning six. Do you remember that at all? Wait, no, my my math is off. You see, I I stopped doing math now. This is what happened. (laughs) Six turning seven. Okay, okay. Yeah. A little bit, a, a little bit. I just remember the excitement from my parents. Okay. I don't remember actually physically watching it. Uh, I, I try not to admit this all too much, but Syracuse was always a, I was a huge Syracuse mm-hmm. guy all through my yeah. childhood yeah. and high school. But before they got to the ACC, I also liked watching Duke a lot growing up. I was, a, I was just somebody who appreciated mm-hmm. Coach K and appreciated the sustained yeah. greatness that they had. Once Syracuse joined the ACC, that got tossed aside real fast, and, and yeah. I was all Syracuse yeah. again, but... So I, I remember actually more vividly watching that Duke 2010. I stayed up late. I had school the next day the when they Shire, beat Butler. Singer, yeah, yeah. When they beat Butler, Gordon Hayward almost mm-hmm. hit the half-court shot. Yeah. And then I actually was there 2013 when Syracuse got to the Final Four. Right. My dad was doing those games on radio in Washington, D.C. So my whole family went. And it was Syracuse. They first beat Indiana, who was the best team in the country that year, yeah. with uh, Cody Zeller and Victor Oladipo. And then this was a Syracuse team with Michael Carter-Williams and Jeremy Grant. They had a couple NBA guys on the roster. And then they crushed 
crushed Marquette, who was really good that year. They also had a couple NBA players, but they held them to 39 points. It's a game <laughs> I'll never forget. Yeah. And one of my favorite Syracuse players ever, a couple of them were on the team, but Bai Musakita yeah. is on that team, and I've actually become close with him, working with him the last few years because he works in the NBA. So it's it's all cool to see these, these things come <laughs> yeah. full circle, people you kind of looked up to. So it's been awesome. Well, I brought up Syracuse because I, I believe I read somewhere that you credit how brutal some of those press conferences could be with <laughs> Coach Beheim for sharpening your skills as an interviewer and as a broadcaster. Yes, big time. Because very rarely would I actually ask Jim questions, but there were times I had one-on-ones with him uh, a few times, and he was really great to me. I was very lucky. He knew my dad, so that helped. But I, I think my work over time started to speak for it as well. He was great with me, and that helped me. But I... No matter how much he likes a person, no matter how much he's comfortable with a person, you better ask a good question because he'll crush you otherwise. That's just his M.O. And You've probably seen a few of those. Oh, <laughs> I have, and some of those maybe not safe for work, so we might have to go outside of the podcast to get some yeah, of those stories yeah. in. But I've seen quite a few where it just feels like there's a dead body in, yeah. the, in the press conference room, and you don't want to be that. You don't want to be the person that just mm-hmm. everybody's eyes – point to right. after you ask a, a stupid question so yes if you're going to ask something to Jim Beheim, it better be very specific it better be smart and by the way I appreciate that from him I do because think about how many times you hear the same old question of oh, what, what what went wrong what this what, talk about this talk yeah. about this yeah. he doesn't stand for that yeah. and he knows that this is the number one journalism school quote-unquote in the country, it's arguing, depending on their rankings, whatever. It's up there. It's one of the top journalism schools in the country. So in his mind, he believes that he is sharpening the skills of those right. journalists, and I guarantee you that the majority of them would say the same. I was at, just as a little comparison, I was at St. Louis University with the late, great Rick Majerus oh, there. Oh, yeah. So I, I know what a dead body looks like. Rick Majerus, <laughs> who is Doc Rivers, who was our coach yeah. this past year, he was his coach in college at Marquette and actually gave him the name Doc, mm-hmm. which is always a good story. It is. It is. Those were fun press conferences, but again, you gotta you got to come prepared when you're dealing with legends like that. For sure. So your senior year in college, uh, we will get to the Clippers situation now. Um, were you actively looking for any job at the point that the Clippers came on your radar, or it just sort of meant to be, it looks like? Yeah, my mentality going into senior year and through senior year was I'm not going to worry about it until – I was thinking late March, early April. That was my my benchmark almost of, okay, once that time rolls around, I'll start to look. Because my thought process was, similar to what I said earlier, you only get so much time in college. You only get senior year once. So instead of having my mind wrapped around what am I going to do after this year, all year, and I knew a lot of people that were like that, and it just completely stressed them out, I said, I'll push it, and I'll figure it out as I go. Well, lo and behold, February rolls around, and I get a message, an email from a professor who's still somewhat new, a couple years into her job. She had taken over as the head of the sports media center, all of sports media, basically, within the Newhouse School. Her name's Olivia Stomsky, and still active in the industry, had worked several years in the industry, especially out west. And so she reached out to me and said, hey... Somebody has reached out, and they're interested in you. Can you send me your best basketball reel? That was all the message said. I said, okay, can you be any more specific? (laughs) She goes, no, I don't want to get into specifics, 
just send me your best basketball stuff. So I literally walk over to her office, which was like a 20-minute walk, walk on over. I say, seriously, I'm going to need a little direction. She just goes, just know somebody within the basketball world is interested and to put together any of the basketball you've accumulated in the last year and, and the best stuff that you have, send it to me. I said, how long? She said, eh, five, ten minutes. I said, okay. So I put together a reel. I spent the whole week doing it. I sent it to her. And I just said, great. Um, I don't want to speculate on what this is. Now, I'm going through my head, I'm like, there's no way it's in the NBA. But right. if it was, maybe it would be with the Clippers because I knew Ralph Lawler was retiring. I said, maybe it would be with, there were other jobs that were potentially opening. And so mm-hmm. I just was kind of looking around and I, I knew that Washington was probably going to be open. So I was like, who knows? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to get my hopes there. I did not let my mind actually go right. there. It was one of those moments of like, I mean, that'd be cool, right? So you don't want to stress yourself out by exactly. just thinking it's NBA. No, of course, of course. So I thought maybe G League. I thought maybe a college, something like that. And so a few weeks go by, and she actually reaches back out and says, hey, do you have a resume and a bio? I said, sure. So I forwarded her my resume and my bio. And, again, few few weeks go by, and pretty much a whole month plus goes by. And so I just thought, okay, nothing came of it, whatever, move on to the next thing. And so we went to the NCAA tournament, which was in Salt Lake City, which was my last Jim Beheim press conference, which was the best one I've ever been in. That's that's (laughs) my favorite story, which we'll get to off the air. Of course. So we go there to Salt Lake City. We come back because we lost first round, which was a surprise result against Baylor. Don't even that that whole. We don't have to revisit that whole game. Was our 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 point guard, starting point guard Frank Howard got suspended Uh for the game just before the game. Whole whole story behind that one as well. Anyway, we get back because we had to stay because we had to book just in case we won for the full four days. So we lost the first day. We had to stay three more days in Salt Lake City. (laughs) I'm like, what is there to do in Salt Lake City? So I explored with the rest of the guys that we went with. We explored the area. Uh, We went to malls. We went to whatever. Flew back to Syracuse. And that next Monday, I had been doing a show on Sirius XM once a week on Monday nights called The Student Section on ESPNU Radio, so a college show. Mm-hmm. And I was driving to that show, as I did every Monday night, and I get a call from a number, from an L.A. number. And I'd been getting a lot of solicitor calls, so I thought, uh, I'm not going to pick it up, but I hadn't gotten one from an L.A. number. So I said, okay, I'll pick it up. And I said, Hello. And it's this big, booming voice. And he says, hello, is this uh, Noah Eagle? I said, yes. He goes, hi, this is Nick Davis from Fox Sports Prime Ticket. Oh. I was like, oh, okay, hello. He goes, as I'm sure you're aware, we're looking to replace Ralph Lawler with the Clippers broadcast. And we'd like to fly you out to interview you and audition you. I said. You had to think, did you think it was a prank call? I thought, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I said, I'm sorry? Uh, what's that? He goes, uh, we're looking to interview you and audition. I said. You have the right person? Noah Eagle? Noah Eagle. <laughs> and you said, yes, Noah Eagle. I said, okay. I said, he said, is there someone we can reach out to? I said, yeah, reach out to my agent. They'll deal with it. I'd signed up with an agent recently. So they reach out. They coordinate it. The next week, I'm flying out to L.A., and I interviewed with the Clippers Brass, and I auditioned. I did a third quarter with Corey Maggetti from nice. a studio downtown L.A., and keep in mind, I'm still I'm still in school, so I had to take red eye back to get back in time. But the really good thing for me, I lucked out timing-wise. I got to L.A., and that night that I got there, I, I flew in night before. That night, the Clippers were playing game five of their first-round series against the Warriors, in which they won in Staples Center. So now I'm going into this that, interview. Yeah. I'm going into this interview, and I'm thinking, 
oh man, they're going to be feeling good tomorrow. And <laughs> they true. were, and they were that's feeling true. I didn't even think about that. They were feeling good the that day. There. Oh, yeah. completely different. If they lose the series that day, maybe they walk in thinking mm-hmm. like, oh, season's Let's over. Man. But now, yeah, yeah. now they're thinking, man, we extended the series against the big bad warriors. Look at this. This is amazing. And so I just luck out to be that day. And so we interview with them, audition mm-hmm. with Corey, take the red eye back to get back for classes. That day, that next few days, then I got there, my agent reaches out and says, hey, Steve Ballmer wants to meet you, which is the owner of the team. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I said, okay, where? He said, Seattle. I said, okay, <laughs> so I have to fly. So I said, when? He said, this coming week. So, again, literally one week apart, I flew to Seattle, did the interview with Steve for about an hour and a half, and then took another red eye back to get back for so classes and whatnot. An hour and a half meeting with Ballmer. I'm sure you know that when just saying that out loud, the – you know, what the assumption is, it's like it's going to be intense. There's going to be a lot of energy. You might be a little Wolf of Wall Street-like. <laughs> how did it go? And how, how do you, I guess, did the time just seem to fly by? Was it just a free-flowing conversation? It was. It was. It was a back and forth. It was much less mm-hmm. an interview, more so a discussion. Mm-hmm. Because he asked me a ton of questions that he was more so genu- genuinely interested in the answers. So I get there. Steve, for those who don't know, is one of the richest men in the world. He is by far the richest owner in sports. Right now, he has $70 billion to his name, and he does a lot of really good stuff with it. Yeah. I mean, he he donates back to his community. He donates to the L.A. community. He donates back home to Detroit, where he's from. He, do, he does a lot of philanthropy work. If you look into it, you can find it. I, I, I know I'm, it sounds like I'm kissing you-know-what of my <laughs> boss, but it, it's yeah. true. What I learned when I got to Steve was everything you see on TV is exactly who he is. He is, for lack of a better term, a big kid at heart in terms of how he's a fan. He loves the team. He loves life. He always enjoys living it. And he, he's a high-energy person. For example, towards the end of the interview, when I asked him, he asked me if I had questions. I said, well, what are you looking for in your broadcaster? His immediate answer, did not think about it, was, someone who's hardcore? <laughs> I said, That's I, great. Can, I can be That's hardcore. Yeah, I, yeah, said, not not I said, I'm not I'm not going to go like a half pike, but yeah. I can do hardcore. Yeah. Uh, but it was really cool because, like I said, he asked certain things like, what did you learn in, in classes about the future of the broadcasting industry? How do you believe virtual reality and augmented reality are going to play a role down the road in broadcasting? How do you think streaming is impacting how people are getting games? Because keep in mind, I was interviewing for the TV position, asking me, what do you think, oh, makes, yeah. a, what do you think makes a good analyst? What makes a good play-by-play person? All this stuff, because he, this is his first time ever going through a broadcasting search. That's and true. And so he's accumulating this information, and even though he's always the smartest guy in the room, you would never know it because he does not act like it. That was what was really cool about him, and we did the hour and a half. I get up. I, I go to leave. He walks me out, and I said, Mr. Bomber, I, I really appreciate you having me. I really appreciate you giving me the chance, and I just wanted to let you know before I leave that if I get the job, the Clippers will be my life. And he said, good to know, and said, thanks for coming in. It was really great meeting you, and that was that. So I didn't know what was going to happen from there, but I meant it and still do that if if that job did fall to me, it was going to be a priority in my life. When did you so, find out then that it was that you got the radio job right. and that you were? Employee? It was all interesting. So I flew back, red eye to Syracuse, mm-hmm. back back to Cuse. Few more weeks, I, I graduate, and the day after my graduation, I actually flew to Chicago because I was working with the NBA Entertainment for the G League 
Elite Camp, which was almost the pre-Combine Combine. combine. Mm -hmm. It's the Combine for the guys who weren't invited to the Combine, and they could earn their spot then at the NBA Combine by playing well, and a, a number of them did. And it was also the NBA Draft Lottery. So it was all in Chicago that weekend, or I guess it was Monday because it was the day after I graduated, so that week. So I get to Chicago. I do all that stuff. I fly back to Syracuse, so this is now Wednesday or Thursday of that week. I take a day to pack everything up, get rid of all my stuff in Syracuse. I drive home, and a day or two after I got home, I think it was the second day I was home back in New Jersey, I get a call. I'm getting ready to go to dinner with my family. We're going out to dinner, and I get a call, L.A. number, and it was from our team president, Gillian Zucker, who was leading the interview with the Clippers when I went, and I said hello, and she said, hey, Noah. I said, yeah. She said, hi, it's Gillian with the Clippers. I just want to let you know that we're going to go a different direction with our TV position, but it's going to open up the radio job, and we would really like for you to take it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a, what a uh, shift in you know momentum there. Right. Right? Because you don't even have time to be like, oh, well, I didn't get the job. It's like they're actually offering me. They were offering <laughs> me a different job. Yeah. And so I, I, my dad had actually said, you know, I wonder if it's a possibility that they give the radio guy the job, and then the radio job. He open. saw it. He saw it coming. He yeah, did. I mean, he's been in the industry for three yeah. decades. He knows. He's seen all these things. And so he said, look, that's a possibility. Be be prepared for that. So I, she said, listen, you don't have to give me a, a response right now. I'm thinking in my head, like, yeah, yeah, my response <laughs> is yeah. But I, I played it cool. <laughs> she said, take the weekend. Let me know on, on Sunday. I said, okay. So I hung up, and... You know the gif from Seinfeld when Elaine comes back from vacation and they're all they they're all, all going nuts in the room. Yeah, I think that was how my family reacted right after the call, right after I hung mm. up. But we all just danced upstairs and then we went to dinner. Wow, that's that's an impressive story of uh, you know sticking with it. And then the cherry on top is that you get to celebrate with everybody. It was too. awesome. Yeah, it was a really good moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So I took you out to Los Angeles, Noah Eagle on the TC Live podcast, and, and this is where we're going to tie it into how you came onto our radar. 2020, you know, all this crazy stuff has happened with the pandemic, but when exactly did you start at Tennis Channel, and how did that kind of come to be? Because I just remember kind of seeing you around like, oh, we have a new broadcast. Oh, yeah, it's the Clippers radio guy, Noah Eagle. <laughs> yeah. What happened was it, it's funny, and a lot of credit to Ross Schneiderman and Ross, who calls a lot of shots here. He, crazy enough, offered me the job with Tennis Channel as almost a flyer because he didn't think I would, I think, and I'd have to talk to him to, to, to be exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure this is was his thought process. His offer was, hey, we'd love to have you as somebody who we can fly you in from time to time. He didn't know that I was talking with the Clippers. Oh, this was before that. That's to me as well. This was, this was before I knew I got the Clipper job. He had emailed me like a day or two before. And so I get the Clipper job, and now I realize, okay, well, well, TC's in L.A. too. And the really cool thing about the Clippers, and I'm, I'm super, super thankful to them for this, is they, they told me when they offered me the job, we want to give you a non-exclusive deal, which means that you, as long as we're your priority, the Clippers, you can go do some other stuff. Go do the other work, and we're going to encourage mm -hmm. that you do that. I said, that's really, really nice of you to, to do because I don't have to do that. 
So once I got the green light from that and I, I took the Clipper job, then it was a no-brainer to sign on with TC. As mentioned, I was a I was a pretty good tennis fan growing up, especially during the David Ferrer years. Well, that was big Ferrer so that guy. was your guy. That I was, was wondering. Guy. I mean, I knew that your your dad's called action here, and you mentioned going to U.S. Opens as a kid. Yeah, but so there had to be a love of tennis and Ferrer. Okay, Ferrer That's was my not guy. The, the first I, option. I had a couple. I had a couple. I had three. I would say in particular. Okay, Ferrer was well outside the big three because I loved Rafa. I was always a Rafa guy growing up. And still love watching him play. But outside those big three, Ferrer, because I'm vertically challenged, as is he, which, why, which is why I always like <laughs> Schwartzman too. But Ferrer, Malfis, well, I yeah, saw him yeah. early in his career, maybe 2005 or 2006 at the U.S. Open. And this was just as he was rising into the ranks, just as he got into the top 20, mm-hmm. and I fell in love with his game. Hard not to. The other one is somebody I feel like people, the, the non-tennis fan, like a casual tennis fan wouldn't remember Alex Dalgopoulos. Oh. <laughs> you want to talk about a unique that game? That is that's that's a unique name and that's a unique answer. Yes, but his his game was so unique because it's a lot of slices, weird. It just was a an unorthodox way of playing, and so I liked watching it. And I saw him at the U.S. Open early in his career too. So all of those names, those were definitely towards the top of my list. But yeah, it was it was a no brainer for me to sign on with TC once I once I realized I was going to be in L.A. Oh, it was the it was the first call I made back to Ross. Had you ever called tennis before before you came I here? I did. I did one match at Syracuse. Okay. Or was it's not? I don't you don't call it a match. One matchup. Like a, yeah, like a college a match college day. matchup. Yeah. yeah. So it was. It ended up being the biggest win in Syracuse history. Look at that. So Just Syracuse one done. Syracuse has a women's team. They don't have a men's team. They have men's club, but they have a women's team. And we actually at the time had a girl who was my in my class at Newhouse. But she was also one of the top players in the country. Her name was Gabriella Knudsen. And I want to say she was from the Ukraine originally. But anyway, she was at Syracuse with us. And I knew her from classes and everything. And she was our top singles player, top doubles player. She ended up being the top, the number one doubles player in the country, I think, her senior year. Anyway, this was our junior year at the time. And I called the match. We did it from a studio. So it was my first... First experience doing something from a studio, not actually being there physically. Huh. We did. We went to the courts, did the stand-up, drove back to the studio at Newhouse, and called the entire thing from Newhouse. And so, for those who aren't super aware of the college rules, I would expect if you listen to the podcast, you, you know them somewhat. They're so funky. They're so different. So, you basically, it's one doubles match. You get the doubles point. And then there's six singles matches. And it just ends, like, essentially. It just ends. It's first to four. First to four points. So you get one doubles point, and then everybody plays singles matches, and you you start counting the points. And Georgia Tech was, I think, third in the the nation at the time. They, They are consistently one of the best programs in the country. Syracuse had struggled in previous years. This was the first year they were starting to figure it out. And they beat them. They beat them 5-2. It wasn't like a 4-3 eke out the victory. No. They won, I think, five of the first six matches. Wow. So it was we were we were blown away. We were it was so beyond anything we could have ever expected. But that was my first experience calling tennis. And being around my dad helped knowing, okay, here's don't talk in these moments. You can talk in these moments. Now at Syracuse, th- this was their first experience of having tennis because it was the first year they had the ACC network partnering with the school. Mm-hmm. And so they had a different mentality of what we should be, when we should be talking, when we shouldn't be talking. I tried to blend the two and create my own style as I went, but it was a lot of fun. Now, I know it's kind of like an open-ended question. You call a lot of basketball games on the radio, which is 
analytic by nature. You have to describe a lot for people that can't see. Calling tennis is so different and, and do certain things, I guess, is what I'm asking. Do certain things stand out to you as this is entirely different? I have to change up my preparation, how I wean on an analyst, for example. What do you have to change about the two different sports? Well, the crazy thing about the Clippers is I don't work with an analyst. I do the games completely by myself on the radio. So that, if you think about it, on well, the radio. Hearing your voice a lot. <laughs> I'm talking for hours. No, I don't have anybody to bounce things off of for the most part. We'd have a little bit between me and, and the pre and post and halftime host. But for the most part, it's me. I have to play all the roles. And so almost getting out of that mentality of having to play all the roles now when I get onto tennis is – that's the biggest challenge, I would say, for me. When I do a basketball game on radio by myself, I call the play, and then when there's a break in the action, I tell you why something happened. Say, well, what you missed was there was a back screen set by Landry Shamit that freed up Kawhi Leonard to get into the left block, and he could put that one in easily. But a great back screen that really set up that banana cut altogether. I said a whole bunch <laughs> of stuff right there as, as an analyst, basically. Yeah. Then there are times during a, a radio game, because there's so much time to fill where I almost have to play a radio host where I'm talking about something that happened in the league. Well, we heard recently that Joel Embiid's not happy about something that's going on in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit because you always have to be topical about on the league. When I'm doing these tennis matches, that's not my job. My job is to basically put punctuation off of things and fill in the blanks and bring that knowledge and then play off the analyst and make them feel comfortable. And that's always been my biggest goal, working in any capacity, whether I'm hosting a show, whether I'm doing a game or a match, is if I'm working with somebody, I want them to feel more comfortable than they've ever felt before. Right. And if I, if I do that, in my mind, it's been a success. And so that's been the most fun part about working here is everybody here, as you know, Mitch, yeah. great people. For great, sure. great, great people. And the analysts and the other play-by-play -play people and other hosts, they're all great. And so being around everybody, it makes it makes this job really easy and really fun. So how would you say your prep work, I guess, changes? Basketball, you have one game, you're loading up, you're, you're getting your board ready, you're getting your numbers, your memorization skill. With tennis, it could be multiple matches in a day. You've done the show as well, so you might have yeah. to prep for that. How does that differ specifically? It depends on the event completely. So, for example... And I'm sure we'll get into this as well, but I got to go to Roland Garros this year. Yeah. And that was completely based. We had no idea if that was going to happen because of the Clippers and we could get into that whole thing. But as you said, I have no idea what matches but sometimes we're going to. There are times where they say, hey, we got to go to uh, court 14 and, and two players I've never heard of who are outside the top 100 or something, or two wild cards going head to head, whatever it might be, that got through to the, the second round miraculously. We're, right. we're paying it off. Yes. And, and Tennis Channel, that's what's yeah, great about yeah, it. It's it first is. ball to last. So you've got to work with what you've got and you've got to be able to look things up quickly, digest information quickly. But at the same time, you have to keep paying attention to the match because if you miss a big point and you're not there to, to put that exclamation point, that's on you. And you're not doing your job. So that's the one difference I would say is I would I'd say 95 to 99 percent of the players in the NBA. I could I could give you all their background, all their information because I've studied them now. But going into that, I guess pulling back that curtain, and showing how the sausage is made. I spend on average for an NBA game somewhere between seven to ten hours beforehand just getting it ready getting the boards ready for both teams, getting my notes down, finding quotes, all of it, because I have to fill the entire two and a half hours. For tennis, one match, I'll spend two hours. 
But that's not usually, I'm not usually only doing one match. Usually I'm doing three, four, five matches. So now you add it up, it equates to the same. And it makes sense because on a basketball team, I have to prepare for 12 players. And I make sure the 12th guy could get in. Jeremy Lin, when he was with the Knicks, was the 12th guy on the bench. Guess what? He came in against the New Jersey Nets at the time. And I remember because was, it was against was the New Jersey it started, Nets. Yeah. It was where it started. He goes off and Lin's sanity starts. If you don't have information about Jeremy Lin, you're screwed. Uh-huh. You're completely screwed. Same thing here. If I don't have deep information, if this goes five sets and I do a full five sets, Dominic Team and Diego Schwartzman, probably not a great example because they're well-known commodities, but that went over five hours. So you better have deep information that you can go to at any given time. And I generally tell people that a good rule of thumb for play-by-play, if you get 30% of the information that you prepared ahead of time in the broadcast, that's high. It's generally high because you don't want to force it in. You want it to come in naturally. And so I know the ones that I, I going in, I say, this is something I got to get in. I got to get this one. It's too good of a story not to get in. Then there are other ones that say, you know what? I'm going to save this just in case. And sometimes when I'm doing these tournaments that I know, okay, maybe I'm going to see this person again, I purposefully save information now right. for the next time I have their match to know, all right, if I have Zverev here, he's probably going to keep advancing let me, let me hold this. Or if okay. I see a match is going one direction and one of the players is going to bow out, I say, okay, well, I can unpack more on this player now. So it's a give and take. It's all a balance, but it's a little bit different as you go just because of the nature of it. I just laugh thinking that the big three have basically been the big three your whole life. So yes, there's been a lot of uh, I guess match repetition with that. But, no, it's true. I mean, like Nadal plays in a full season, not counting this year. You know, if he plays 50, 50 60 matches – there's a lot of people calling the doll matches. There's a lot of the same points being made. So it's challenging to have your prep work done for newer players. But if you want to find that new bit of info that, you know, dig deep a little bit, it's harder. It is. And that's that's where when I'm sure when I say it takes seven to ten hours for a basketball game, people are going to say, but you know about Kawhi Leonard. Sure. But what else can I find out about him exactly. that people don't know? How can I go to him and ask him a question? That's the, a benefit I have working for a team is – I can go up to a player and ask him what he was thinking about this or a coach asking, well, why did you play Kawhi in this situation instead of this situation? For tennis, I can really lean on these analysts to say, okay, well, what makes this a better play? Why would he do this in this moment? Why would she do this when she's down 2-5 in the third? Those types of things that really help. And then I can bounce off other things and really find out about the personalities of these players. But I definitely try to dig as deep as possible you can't go too deep because then you're just you're almost shooting yourself in the foot. You're you're just it's almost counterintuitive. Sure. So you have to find the right blends, and over time that becomes easier and easier with repetitions. Well, you brought it up. I want to talk about the French Open experience yeah. because you get the chance to go make the Grand Slam visit. Probably not how you dreamed it up for the first time going to Roland Garros, but there were fans there. It was exciting. I don't know if you'd ever gone before when your dad had been calling it, but it seemed very eerie. And the other thing that stood out was just night tennis at Roland Garros, which is bizarre to see. <laughs> Crazy, right? I love, I've always loved Roland Garros. It's always been outside the U.S. Open, naturally going every year among my favorite, probably my second favorite Grand Slam because I was a big Rafa fan growing up and a big Ferrer guy, and they, they always flourished for the most part on clay. And so I always looked forward to the tournament. And every year I'd ask my dad, take me with you, take me with you. And he'd say, no, I have to work. No, no, no. So fast forward to last year after I graduated college, my mom and sister were going. They bought my plane ticket. I was going to go for the first uh, time. And last minute I got a call from Sirius XM saying, hey, 
is there a chance you can come in and work? And my dad said, it's more important that you work than to come to. That's great though. Yeah, that's great, great advice. And yeah. it was, and it was, he was totally right. And I was like, you know what? Okay. He said, just keep doing all this good work and maybe one day you're going to work the tournament. Talks about the plane ticket though, obviously. It, uh, <laughs> I think he used his millions of miles. The dude has, my dad has more <laughs> frequent flyer miles than most people in three lifetimes. Let's put it that way. So I, I'd say it was all good. He used miles and it was all fine. But my point is, I was disappointed at the time. I was thinking, man, I missed my chance, missed my chance. And I said, I basically, they, my both my mom and dad both told me to keep thinking to myself, you'll get there one day, you'll work it one day. You'll get there one day, you'll work it one day. And so I just kept thinking that, and then I forgot about it as the basketball season went on and everything like that. And so now we fast forward to this year. And first of all, I'd never been to Paris, period. Mm. Forget just Roland Garros. I'd never been to Paris or France. I've been to Europe, been to London, been to Spain, but never to Paris. And that was a place I always wanted to go. So that was one. And Ross again reached out to me and said, hey, I know that you, the Clippers, if they're playing, you have to do their games. But if for some reason they get eliminated earlier than expected, can you come? And that was from a studio here, right, for the Clipper games? You were doing yes, it in a studio? I was doing them all out of a, a studio downtown L.A. from the Fox Sports West Studios in downtown L.A., which was a, another different experience altogether, as 2020 <laughs> as a whole has been. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I mean, I've got nothing to lose. That That's a win-win for me. Either the Clippers keep playing and have a chance to play for a title, or I go to Roland Garros, which is something I've always wanted to do. And what ends up happening was the Clippers collapse in the second round. And and Ross actually texted me after the first round when we beat the Mavericks saying, uh, looks like uh, you're going to, you're not going to be coming to Roland Garros with us. And I said, ah, let's, let's take it one at a time. I'm a superstitious person. Did they have to, if they would have made the conference final, would you not have been able to go? I would not have been able wow. to come. So, and they go up in <laughs> yeah. the, in the second round three, one and Ross texts me again. And I said, Ross, do not jinx it. Wow. Cause he said, ah, looks like you're out. I said, well, oh, oh no. don't jinx it. Sure enough, it's yeah. jinx. And he was not the only one who texted me. Do you know, there were so many people that texted me saying, wow, this is incredible history. I'm like, no, 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 don't. They don't know how the sports gods work. Yeah, don't, go, don't, don't do <laughs> yeah. that. Don't do that. So, uh, Ross, I, I, I love you. Yeah. I do. And I appreciate everything you do. But yeah. that was a jinx. Yeah. That was a jinx. I'm a, I'm a superstitious guy. That was a jinx. But anyway, I'm really appreciative because it was, it was an incredible consolation prize, so to speak for getting eliminated from the playoffs the way that we did. And just being able to go, I know it was different. It was somewhat eerie, but even though I didn't get to experience Paris as Paris and sit down at a cafe or go to the Louvre or any of this mm-hmm. stuff, I got to walk around. I, get to, I got to get enough of a feel for the city and very safely. I didn't, I really was super careful about how I went about mm-hmm. everything, but um, took my walks when I could and got to call some great tennis. And yeah. as mentioned with great people, Great, great people. And so I was super thankful to Tennis Channel for, for bringing me along, for even thinking of me. And I, it's an experience I'll never forget, and I hope that I get to go back. You got to see Rafa number 13, too. So yes. add that on top yes. of it. Yes, I did. And I got to watch him live. The best part was Paul and I were at Chatrier for the day or the night that Dominic Team was playing Hugo Gaston. And... It was that epic five-cent match, but we didn't, we weren't doing it that day. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the rights to it. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the few that that happened. But it was funny because we're doing one match, and we keep kind of peering up, looking <laughs> at the other one. So we were we were doing, I believe it was Schwartzman and Sonego. And now Sonego, of course, keeps yeah. winning, which is great. But Schwartzman wiped him that day. 
And so we're watching Schwartzman, and then we're looking up, and I keep seeing that team just keeps blowing these leads. I'm like, what's <laughs> going on? It was it was awesome. It was really, really awesome just to be there and, and see it. And I know that there weren't the, the normal allotment of fans and all the, the excitement, and I didn't quite get the feel of that, but I got a sense of what Roland Garros is all about. And, and the new renovated Philippe Chatrier was incredible. Yeah, early early rounds at a tournament like that when there's everybody playing and all this drama unfolding. I mean, the championships are incredible, but you see early round tennis. It's just yeah. exciting. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, no Eagle, this has been a blast. I want to, you know, wrap with uh, some current events talk in the world of tennis here on the TC Live podcast. We got Vienna right now. Quarterfinal round just completed with every single underdog winning. Mm-hmm. I think the sports books had that at like 56 to 1. So somebody could <laughs> have had a, a, I'm not a betting No, guy, I know. So. <laughs> well, let's just say for the sake of this argument that I am. Okay. Uh, 56 <laughs> to 1 would have been a would have been a hefty payout. And some of those upsets are more predictable than others, but what stood out to you today as we get forward and we look forward to the weekend here? I'd say Andre Rublev's continued dominance is probably, I know that the top story is going to be Lorenzo Sanego mm-hmm. and the fact that he got past Novak Djokovic, but I've been so incredibly impressed by Andre Rublev. Quietly has won, I think it was, I had the notes down for the show, 18 of 19 matches now. Yeah, two 500 titles. Yeah. That's the, he looks like a major champion. He like does. This is, I, and I think yeah. that's that, that to me has been the, the biggest story because – we talk about, and it's almost, it's funny, we talked about this earlier either last week or this week, about the, the three Russians and how last year, a year ago at this time, if you said which one do you are you most likely to bet on moving forward, you would have gone Medvedev, Hachinov, and then Rublev. And it's completely flipped now. Now it looks like it's Rublev, I don't know, between <laughs> the other two, because Medvedev yeah. again today kind of laid an egg. So... Uh, to me, Andre Rublev is the biggest storyline on the men's side, or one of them, mm-hmm. aside from maybe Yannick Sinner yeah. or some of these other ones. But he's one of the biggest storylines of 2020, and he just doesn't look like he's going to slow down. The ATP Cup, if you remember, you only get to pick two singles players. Yes. Rublev didn't make it for right. Russia. That's my point. It's like, it's incredible. Yeah, I, and I also think what we're going to see, eventually, we, it's like beating a, beating a dead horse, but eventually the big three can't win every single major. We don't know when that's going to happen. It's good. It, it's got to be another four or five years. It's, it seems that way. It seems that way. But you, you're going to get to the sense of how the women's game, the women's bracket have opened up. Sometimes these styles, like they say styles make fights. Rublev lost to Medvedev at the U.S. Open. That's a tough matchup. They've known each other for a while. Rublev's transitioned himself to a guy that can beat top players, has weapons. It's been remarkable. Uh, the the Djokovic upset though, that's what's going to get all the press. Maybe not that he lost, but that he lost two and one. Yeah, second first, loss of the year. And well, it was also officially. the first, yeah, second real yeah. loss of the year if you want to go there. But it was the first time. I, this stat was crazy. First time since the two thousand five Australian Open that he lost three or fewer games in an entire match. Wow. And that was an that was best three out of five. But it was against Safin. Was, I mean, yeah, it was about against Murat Safin. Yeah. So that's it's a caveat there. But my point oh. being. That was sheer dominance. Now, people are going to say, well, Novak didn't really quite care. especially." And if you watch the match, he did coast through the mm-hmm. end. So 
that's fair. He he wanted to come here. He, he said his goal was to lock up the year number one. In theory, he hasn't because Rafa can still, but he's not going to play no. in a 250 event. There's no chance he's going to do that in Sofia. So for all intents and purposes, Novak achieved what he wanted to achieve in this tournament. He wasn't necessarily going to do anything spectacular. And Dominic team going down the way he did to Rublev, he was hurt. He was dealing with the foot issue, and Dominic's played a ton of matches this year. During the the shutdown, he played more tennis, I think, than anybody. Yeah. It just seemed like he was in every exhibition. So eventually that's going to catch up with you, and we'll see what kind of impact that has on the ATP Finals. But if I'm betting on somebody, I know you said you're, you want to go for the odds, <laughs> give me Andre Rublev with the way he's playing right now. If yeah. I'm going to pick somebody in Nito, I'm picking Rublev because mm. the dude's been red hot. I think what we've seen the last couple of years, once you get off that big three perch, is that it's hard to really, it just shows you how brilliant they are. It's hard to sustain greatness. It's hard to sustain being a top five player, let alone a top three. Sitsipas Medvedev, where the talk last year, Sitsipas wins Nito. Medvedev goes on this run, I think had the most match wins. At the end of the day, guys are going to get better. You can't just maintain that greatness easily. You got Rublev coming up, Sinner's making his way. So it is good to see that the next generation is, is not, they're not just settling into roles. They're jacking for a position. They're taking it and they're giving it. And it's been fun. It's it's also, obviously, the rankings are so upside down this year because of how they're working yeah. it with the 2019 results still counting. So a guy like Berrettini, he has not had the year that he did last year. Medvedev, nowhere close to what he did last year, but because of the rankings, yeah. they're going to be put in positions yeah. to now It's succeed. like Andrescu hasn't even played a she match played. this year, and she's no. top 10. Ash still. Barty, she, yeah. she basically wins two major yeah. big tournaments, and she's set herself up now moving mm-hmm. forward for next year, yeah. which is great for them, but it, it's for a guy like Sinner, I wonder where he would have stacked right. up if things were a little different. Or uh, That's the other thing is these Italian tennis in general. That's been really cool to see. The fact that they've got eight in the top 100 right now and Musetti is probably going to climb up by next year in there as well. Mm -hmm. That's been really, really impressive. And I'm a huge – I became a Yannick Sinner fanboy because we did – I want to say it was the first – no, it was not the first exhibitions. That was Adria Tour, which we won't get into. It was (laughs) the second set of exhibitions I did here this year was July. So it was just before the tour was coming back. And it was in Berlin. Berlin. Right. Dominic team was the the headliner, but Yannick Sinner was there, and I'd never heard of Yannick Sinner before that. I didn't know who he was. I, all I knew is, okay, he was a next-gen guy. I think he won the next-gen. So I did my research because I had his match right off the bat, and he ended up losing that match, I want to say. Or did he win the first one and then lost the second? Either way, I, I got up. I was doing it with Paul, and I looked at Paul. I said, what, what, who is this? He goes, oh, yeah, he's, oh, yeah. he's a real deal. <laughs> That's and we did, we did four or five of his matches through the week. Through the, I think it was a week long event because it was, we did grass and then hard court. And I left because he got to the final of the hard court one. I got up, I left, and I said to Paul, could this guy be like number one one day? Is he that good? He goes, he has ability to that level. Whether or not he gets there is, is the next question. And of course, it has to deal with the other players as much as yeah. it does him. But he, uh, I left there, and then I started telling people, like, Yannick Sinner, Yannick Sinner, by yeah. stock. So now, so now <laughs> I'm doing this in like June and July. And so then Roland Garros comes around. People are reaching out to me like, hey, who do you like? I go, Yannick Sinner. And then I look really smart. So I was, shout out Tennis Channel for making me look smart. Gail Monfils was who, your boy, who is who he beat uh, last year. Uh, One of these, about this time last year in an indoor tournament, everyone's like, 
you know, who is this? Not yeah, kind of like, like oh, what you said. Been one hit wonder. Who knows? Yeah, it's it's been incredible to watch, and he's got a lot of maturity as well. I do want to shout out to both uh, Dan Evans and Kevin Anderson, though, yes. for different reasons. I mean, they've kind of battled to get to this point. It shows you that there's a lot of players taking this serious. There's money, there's opportunity that you haven't had, and you know, for Anderson to get back to the mix is is great to see. It's as really well. cool from Anderson. I loved watching him at Roland Garros. Just being able to be on the court the way they did and sustain for a five set match was really cool and stay healthy enough to actually compete for Dan Evans. You talk about people who finish a year strong. That's back to back weeks. He's been in a semifinal last year, last week of two fifty, now in a 500. So he's setting himself up and it's all about momentum. If he can yeah. establish some momentum, maybe he can get himself back up the ranks a little bit. He's close enough to break into the top 25 potentially and look, he has a chance to win this thing because I believe I'm trying to remember he has Sanego in this in the semifinal, yeah. right? So Lorenzo Sanego, Dan Evans, very winnable match. And then if he gets to the final, Rublev Anderson, that might be a little tougher. But look, it's open for Evans, and he nearly got past Umber last week in Antwerp. He had an opportunity in that grueling three setter to get to the final as well. So uh, yeah. I, I like what I've seen out of him in particular. He's a fighter. Absolutely is a fighter. Uh, TC Live podcast with Noah Eagle. As we wrap this up, just a final little question for you. We mentioned broadcasting and, you know, the good moments of it. How would you say you're able to move past maybe a bad moment, a bad call? You might notice in the moment I, I didn't word that properly. How do you turn the page and not, you know, let it sit in your head? You just have to have short memory in those situations. It's no different than when a player double faults or in basketball they miss a free throw when the game on the line or miss a putt when you have a chance to, to gain a lead on a leaderboard. Have a short memory, and it's very important because the people, there are a lot of people, and I think certainly when we start in the industry, one mistake can unravel the rest of your performance. If you let one mistake unravel the rest of your performance, then think about it. Now your rest of your performance yeah, is... Like a tennis match there. Exactly. It's the same same concept in my head. So that was something that my dad always told me actually... Before I ever even got into broadcasting, because I had never done any broadcasting until I got to college. But before that, just giving, when I had to give a speech in school, he always used to say, if you slip up, just keep moving on. Nobody's going to notice. Nobody will really notice. Sometimes, a lot of times, you might not, it might not come out the way you expect it to come out in your head. Nobody at home notices the difference. And if you notice it and then let it affect you, then people will. So that's kind of the way I look at it. And it happens a lot. Very, very rarely do you have a perfect broadcast. I think, I don't know if any broadcaster would tell you, yep, I had a perfect broadcast. I know Mike Tarico years ago told me, I'm still looking for that perfect game. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, the game where I don't mess a single thing up. I said, okay. He goes, I'm ne I've never had it. Good chance I never will. I'm still striving for it. And that's the mentality you have to have. Perfectly said. Perfectly said. I mean, you'll get there one day. Still just 22, 23 years old now. 23? 23, 23. I would ask you long-term goals and, and plans, but, I mean, you're, you're settled into a nice spot I love spot it here, right man. Now. Are you yeah. kidding? I love it here. Yeah. This is Tennis Channel. You got that. You got the Clippers. It's a good place. And pop culture references we have to look forward <laughs> That's to. That's right. We That's started right. this with Borat. So, uh, appreciate the time. Player. Appreciate you coming on the TC Live podcast. Hope to have you again soon. And uh, I'll be the first to congratulate you on a, a great first season with tennis channel i appreciate you mitch thank you it's, it, it was fun this was fun and yes we'll try to get as many pop culture references in as possible if you hear one my favorite thing is when i i subtly drop something and someone tweets at me or reaches out to me about it for example the other day when novak was playing i said he's like thanos 
from the Avengers, he's inevitable. And immediately got a text from a kid I went to school with growing up saying, oh, that was great. So I love that stuff. If you hear it, tweet at me, whatever, at NoEagle15. Shameless plug. Make sure you tweet at him. This was a blast. Noah Eagle on the TC Live podcast. A reminder, you can catch every episode on the Tennis Podcast Network. Tennis.com slash podcast. We'll be back next week. Got the ATP finals to uh, preview as well as look at what's going on in the ATP Paris Rolex Masters. For Noah Eagle, I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the TC Live podcast. We'll see you next week.